Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. We're going to commence with a short reading from the scriptures from Psalm 11, just to set the tone for what we're going to say and to give proper place to biblical account. So, a short reading from Psalm 11, reading from verse 1. In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For lo, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven, his eyes behold. His eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth doth behold the upright. Well, our subject this evening is victim wars. I want to talk to you for a time this evening on victimhood and intersectionality and it's not a popular topic but if you can bear with me and try and understand it it will give you some insight I hope into what's happening in the culture and why it's happening there are notes on the door at the table at the door and if you'd like a copy of the notes feel free to take some I didn't do too many but there may be some left Well, I wonder, have you even noticed today that victimhood seems to be becoming fashionable? Some people seem to constantly wallow in it. Gone are the days of looking adversity in the face, determined to overcome it. Many modern people just simply want to regard themselves as victims of one sort or another. Now, I want to make one thing clear right at the very start. We have great sympathy with those who have suffered. We have great sympathy with those who are genuine victims, and there are many of them. We can think of victims of murder, victims of rape, fraud, theft, victims of discrimination and bullying, neglect, victims of slavery, human trafficking, victims who are men and women and children. And we're certainly well aware of the problems of genuine victimhood here in Northern Ireland, even though of late there have been concerted attempts to muddy the issue, to shift the blame, to make victims out of those who are actually victim-makers. No less a person than our Secretary of State in a recent address doing exactly that. 
I recall having a conversation in the 1990s with an evangelical Christian girl from Dublin, a genuine Christian believer, and talking about the church in Northern Ireland and about ongoing ecumenical trends among evangelical Christians and churches in the Republic. And out of the blue, totally unexpectedly, she just simply threw in the comment, but sure you Northern Protestants treated the Catholics like dirt before the Troubles. I brought up in a Protestant working class home with very little social advantages. I was shocked. But then later on, in reflection, I thought I shouldn't have been surprised. That was the narrative that was pushed in the media. It was probably pushed in whatever school she'd attended in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. All Catholics, according to the, the popular narrative, all Catholics were the victims of Protestant bigotry and all Protestants were the oppressors. In a report in the newsletter referencing a BBC interview with Michelle O'Neill, the deputy president of Sinn Féin, she referred to being born into a society which was actively discriminating against Catholics. And that, she thought, was justification for the IRA campaign of violence. After all, as she said, there was no alternative. An example of the corrosive result of the culture of victimhood. Now let me recall a tragedy that occurred in the 70s and 80s. Let me have a moment of personal reflection. A friend of mine from Newton Arts had, from his earliest days, wanted to be a policeman, just like his dad. So he joined the RUC Reserve and served with me for a couple of years, and then went to Enniskillen to train for the regular police force. He was a good officer and was earmarked for rapid advancement for promotion. He worked hard and he studied, and after a few years was promoted to sergeant and, being a single man, was stationed in Fork Hill in South Armagh. At 1.35pm on the 31st of January 1984, a young single man, he was travelling with a colleague between Meath and Drummond Tea when terrorists detonated a £1,000 bomb under his car. He was killed instantly. He was 27. Michelle O'Neill says... There was no alternative. Who's the victim? Don't think it's Michelle O'Neill. But 50 or 60 years on from the height of the Troubles, victimhood, or what we might better call fabricated victimhood, is now a prevailing attitude in society. So homosexuals regard themselves as victims. Blacks or people of colour, as they call themselves, are victims. Women are victims. Disabled people are victims. Transsexuals are victims. Muslims are victims. Illegal immigrants, asylum seekers, economic migrants, they're all victims. There's even people around today who even regard pedophiles as victims. And so it goes on. Probably the only people who are not victims are white, middle-aged, middle-class, male Christians, who are the oppressors. 
So we're going to briefly look at how this has happened. How did we reach this state of affairs? We want to do it in two ways. We're going to look at how cultural Marxism has evolved out of the ashes of economic Marxism. And we're going to see how our society has become hypersexualized by the psychological philosophies of Sigmund Freud. And how in response, Satan has raised up organizations and individuals to wage war on society's historic, I say, biblical institutions, undermining the church, undermining the family, undermining education, undermining the universities, and even undermining the national state. Until, with the assistance of human rights laws, and the plethora of lawyers that have sprung up from those laws come into force, how victimhood and offence-taking has become one of the defining features of our modern society. Where the culture of victimhood sees your moral worth as being defined by your skin colour, your gender identification, your membership in a fixed identity group, or your religious affiliation. But the proliferation of victimhood claimants from various strata of society is always going to cause problems. Which victim is the most victimised? So having seen how our divisive societal system arose and became what it is today, we're going to look at intersectionality an attempt to create a hierarchy of victims with ranked and rated claims for acknowledgements and apologies and sometimes even reparations. And then finally, we want to look at a biblical understanding of personal responsibility and ask about genuine victims and see how God offered the most innocent victim of all as a reparation for our sins. You're listening to the Semper Reformata podcast with Bob McAvoy. So let's look at critical theories and the roots of victimhood. You may have heard someone talking about, for example, critical race theory. Encyclopedia Britannica talks about critical race theory as being an intellectual movement and a framework of legal analysis, according to which race is a culturally invented category used to oppress people of colour. And the law, legal institutions and in various Western states are inherently racist insofar as they function to create and maintain social, political and economic inequalities between white and non-white people. So critical race theory states that the modern society that we live in by its institutions and its structures is inherently racist. 
that we discriminate against people of color, and white people in particular are involved in this alleged discrimination, even if they are unaware of it, we are guilty of some kind of internal inborn racism. So, have you interrogated your whiteness today? It's a phrase that was actually used in a recent case of critical race theories being put into practice. On the 2nd of October last year, 2022, the Daily Mail online carried a story about a Christian mental health nurse, Amy Gallagher. I'm sure you might have heard, some of you heard of Amy. She was studying psychology at the Portman Clinic in London, and she has claimed that she was discriminated against because of her colour and her beliefs. The headline in the mail read, Christian nurse sues controversial Tavistock and Portman NHS Trust for forcing racist ideology on students in lecture entitled Whiteness, a Problem of Our Time. It was an online presentation. Here's what was said in that presentation. The problem of racism is a problem of whiteness. They encouraged attendees to confront the reality of their whiteness. At a meeting with her course leader, Mrs. Gall- Miss Gallagher explained that she did not consider herself racist, that she took a colorblind approach, meaning that she did not judge people by their skin color. Miss Gallagher claims that she was told that such a colorblind approach is now outdated. So she filed a formal complaint to the Tavistock Trust in January last year. In March, the legal case was escalated after an external speaker complained to the Nursing and Midwifery Council claiming that Miss Gallagher had inflicted race-based harm and as a result could not work with diverse populations. You can listen to Amy's story on a podcast on the UK Column website. But critical theory is not just about race. The essence of critical theory is that everything considered to be institutional in society, everything that you have accepted as the norm up to now is all to be questioned and all to be deconstructed. Like race theories, wider critical theories, consider morality and gender and disability to be culturally invented categories used by the establishment or used by the oppressor classes, that's you and me, to discriminate against minority or identity groups within society. So causing multiple allegedly disadvantaged victim groups. How did that come about? Where are two main influences that have brought our society to where it is today. The first of these is by a man called Karl Marx. Karl Heinrich Marx. He was a German philosopher, economist, historian, sociologist, political theorist, journalist, and of course, as you know, a socialist revolutionary. He lived in from 5th of May, 1818, to the 14th of March, 1883, 
and he wrote several books, a pamphlet called The Communist Manifesto, Das Kapital, his political and economic theories. Let's find out something about him and how he has influenced modern society. First of all, we have to understand that Marx was a materialist. He was only interested in what you have. As a creature of the 19th century Enlightenment, of course, he was an atheist. His atheism formed his political and economic thought. He believed that outside this present world, nothing exists. So you have to have your best life now. That sounds like anybody else you might know. For him, eternal life and heavenly reward were of no interest. Everybody lives in a relationship with others, Marx thought. And the nature of those relationships is determined by people's own opinion about themselves, their self-worth, how they see themselves, their identity. And for some people, the relationship that you live in will lead to alienation, to being at odds with your surroundings, with the people who work with you and the people who are over you in work. And that alienation, thought Marx, might cause the individual distress and perhaps emotional discomfort. And perhaps he might even be offended. A man who wants to belong to a certain group in society, perhaps a certain type of organization, and is unable to because of some disadvantage, may find himself offended. Of course, for Marx, the issue of his day was economic disadvantage. He saw alienation in the way that working people of his day were being treated by their employers, how they could never hope for a better life. Marx was also very anti-religion of any description. I suppose one of the most well-known Marxist doctrines is encapsulated in the phrase Religion is the opium of the people. In context, that statement is part of Marx's argument that religion was constructed to calm the population's uncertainty over their role in the universe. Religion, he thought, was used to keep people under control. It was a kind of a tool, or perhaps even a weapon, used by the classes he called the bourgeoisie, the mill owners and the factory owners and the business proprietors and the middle class oppressors of the proletariat, the workers. It was to keep them in submission so the workers would be expected to attend their church. And of course, 19th century style, liberal, unbelieving Christianity was just good works. It was utilitarianism. It was unitarianism. There was no gospel message. It was just do your best and be a good person. And the workers would go along and they would hear pious homilies about being faithful in marriage and staying sober and temperate. And they would learn how they should obey their masters and to work hard and to live contented lives and to be content with what they've got, and to respect their betters and their elders. And of course, Marx saw all of that dead churchmanship of its day, of his day, and its legalistic preaching as being nothing more than a means of keeping the workers compliant. All of which would improve the factory's productivity, religion, 
like a drug, thought Marx, was a human construct to keep his workers docile. And of course, if they had nothing in this world and lived miserable, hopeless lives in appalling conditions while the bosses lived in their grand homes and fared splendidly, Marx told them, you're being promised an afterlife that's better. For Marx, therefore, the complete destruction of any kind of religion, and especially of Christianity, which he was witnessing in the form of dead, legalistic, Unitarian churches, was essential, he thought, in creating a society in which everyone was equal. Marx, above all things, was a superb strategist. He put his theories, his godless theories, into society, into every part of society, by creating conflict. Marx believed that every single part of society, every human social interaction, was based on economic and political values. Wherever we meet, Social and economic distinctions and the conventions they produce can be seen. And even that observation, even when it's only hardly seen at all, even when it's tacit, let's call that in modern terms unconscious bias. But it's there, even if people don't, even if people play it down. So for Marx, every area of human interaction became a battleground. Everything from the national parliaments right down to the local meeting of the Christian Institute was a place where unconscious bias against people on their economic basis could be observed and must be fought, said Marx. If Marx could have had an activist in every place where human beings met, he thought he could influence thought. That's still going on. Every area of social interaction today has become a battleground. Haven't you noticed that? Golf clubs. You don't get a man-only golf club nowadays, do you? Feminists have been waging war. We might think that's not a bad thing. I don't care about golf. Boy Scouts and I have girls. In the USA, the Boy Scouts of America were shamed by cultural Marxists into allowing homosexuals to be leaders. Imagine the danger of Scout Camp. Girl guides, even over here, have completely dropped any pretense at being a Christian inclined organization. They used to have a promise to love and serve God and then that was watered down after the battle that went on in their ranks to love my God and then it went on uh, to be changed again to I promised I will do my best to be true to myself and develop my beliefs, whatever that means. A godless, pathetic reflection of cultural Marxism, the strategy of Marx turning every area of social interaction 
into a battleground. Sports bodies, women's sports, destroyed by the deliberate insertion of men, dressed up as women, pretending to be women, men with a greater masculine muscle mass than their competitors, depriving women of the opportunity to compete fairly against their peers. And there are many, many more examples. Everything has become a war. Everything has become a battleground. An activist walks into a cake shop, demands that he's going to have a cake celebrating and promoting gay marriage when he knows that the cake shop is a place owned by a Christian company. The same for wedding service providers. It goes right down to school toilets, which has become a battleground for cultural Marxists. Here's a quote from Carl Truman's book, Strange New World. Truman writes, There is nothing in this world where human beings can relate to each other that is not a potential area of political conflict because all areas of life connect to the overall economic structure of society and so to society's inequalities and injustices and Marx should be given much of the credit for laying the political foundations of that. So let's keep Marx in our heads. Marx was all about the here and now, about getting a better life, about materialism. Marx was anti-religion of any description. Marx was a strategist. And there's another influence upon modern society we should briefly consider. This is not an exhaustive list. There are others. Nietzsche, for example. But I want to look momentarily at Sigmund Freud. Freud, of course, was an Austrian urologist. He lived in the late 1800s, died in 1936. He was the founder of a theory of psychoanalysis, a a clinical method for evaluating and treating mental illness. Illness thought to be originating from conflicts, he thought, in the psyche. It was specifically a talking treatment, and it was welcomed at the time because hitherto some of the theories about training and teaching and treating, sorry, treating mental illness were quite horrendous including boring holes in people's skulls, um, electric shock therapies, serious stuff. And so along came Freud with this talking treatment, and it was immediately and readily accepted. Um, Some throwbacks from the medical establishment, some pushbacks, but eventually it became popular. And a whole distinctive theory of mind evolved from that, and he has influenced modern thought in two very important ways, maybe three. In fact, it has been said that Freud is the single most important figure in the formation of modern secular worldview. His first influence was his belief and supposition that physical sex is the basis for human happiness. He posited the theory that everybody wants to be happy. And in the opinion of Freud, happiness is achieved through sexual gratification. Now Freud, like 
Karl Marx before him, he didn't believe in God, he didn't believe in eternity, he didn't believe in heaven. In his godless mind, the pursuit of happiness, purpose in life, he might have called it, understood to emanate from a close relationship with the creator God who made us and who laid down the parameters of life. He done away with all of that. He had no time for it. A search for happiness was simply physical, sexual climax. Everything, absolutely everything, in Freud's view, is about sexual indulgence. And so the gratification of sexual indulgence became Freud's idol. And it has remained so in the modern world, wouldn't you agree? The god of the groin must be satisfied at all costs, whatever the price, even if the price is the murder of an unborn human being, even the taking of the life of a baby. The ramifications of that godless, demonic dogma is that everything in life centers around sexuality. Modern society is simply reflecting Freud's ideology in education. Sexual education is taught to the very youngest of primary school children. And as they get older, that instruction becomes more lurid, more practically applied with lessons, not just about human anatomy and biology, but about various sexual deviancies and methods. I'm sure in this company I don't need to elaborate. Gay Pride has become Gay Month. Soap opera storylines on the television frequently and commonly involve sexual themes. Storylines, reality television, Love Island, all of these things are about the gratification of human desire. Drag queen story are in our libraries. Where's that coming from? That's coming from Freud. Everything is about human sexual gratification. And of course, that meant that sexual boundaries were breached. Freud had no problem with homosexuality, even if in his lifetime it was illegal. So if you think that happiness, true human happiness, only comes from sexual satisfaction, satisfaction of your most base desires, then how those desires are fulfilled is irrelevant so long as they are fulfilled. Now that has deeply influenced modern society. That's pervasive in the secular worldview. If an individual's physical needs require him or her to have some form of perverted sex in order to be happy, something that is forbidden by the rest of society or by conservative thought in society or by conservative pressure groups like Christian churches or like the Christian Institute, for example, then that makes the poor sexually deprived pervert deprived of his personal happiness in his eyes a victim of bigoted intolerance. You only have to listen to certain talk shows and phone-ins on the BBC. Try going on to the BBC at 9 o'clock in the morning or 12 o'clock in the afternoon and say that homosexuality is a sin. See how far you'll get before you're cut off. And that goes right down the line. 
Nothing is excluded except by traditional boundaries of sexual prejudice. And those boundaries must be pushed, say these people, and pushed until every victim is recompensed with his own or her own personal sexual freedom. It even goes so far as to include pedophilia. The slide has already begun. The boundaries are being forcibly removed as the so-called minor attracted people cry loudly for our approval for the infliction of their sexual perversions upon children, small children, who have no means of defence in the name of toleration and acceptance of their lifestyle. Because of Freud and Marx, society has become defined and demarcated by sexual identity. Because you must be true to yourself, like the girl guides are teaching their five-year-olds. Because you must be true to yourself, that will involve what they call coming out, expressing your preferences openly and publicly. And because people are doing that, society then breaks down into self-identified groups based on sex based on perceived gender, based on colour or race or ethnicity or social status or refugee status or disability or whatever. Freud's theory of civilization is also interesting. It affects his understanding of morality. You see, we understand morality as being law-based. The biblical law understanding the common law of our once so-called Christian nation. There's a solid foundation for the law. We don't murder. We don't steal. We don't commit adultery in any form. Breaking those laws is against the law of God. It's against common law. It's against common decency. It's immoral. We don't believe in killing people. We don't believe in stealing stuff from them. We don't believe in committing acts of sexual deviancy, even in the pursuit of personal pleasure and happiness. But Freud had no time for the Bible's moral codes. He believed the only reason so-called moral people didn't like homosexuality, for example, was that it disgusted them. And so people are prevented, thought Freud, from attaining happiness in their activities because they are afraid that others might be disgusted by them. There was a huge riot in 2007. It was because in an interview, Ian Paisley Jr. had said, and I quote, I'm pretty repulsed by gay and lesbianism. I think it is wrong. I think that those people harm themselves, and without caring about it, they harm society. That doesn't mean to say that I hate them. I mean, I hate what they do. Nothing wrong with that statement, is there? There was a huge outcry. The liberal mainstream press picked up on his pretty repulsed comment. They attacked him fiercely for it. Criticism was unrelenting for weeks. 
Eventually, he clarified his remarks. He said, I do not hate anyone. I was brought up not to hate anyone. I was asked for my view. I do not think my answer was outrageous or offensive. If you look in the Oxford English Dictionary, the definition of repulsion, it is disgust. But you see, that's exactly what Freud was claiming, that it is disgust that is stopping people from enjoying their sexuality and therefore fulfilling their lives and therefore being happy. It was Freud's opinion that the disgust felt by Paisley and the rest of us, ourselves included, is what informs our morality. And we have to get rid of our disgust, basically, is what that secular worldview is saying. People have to be free to express their sexual preferences. So we must be quiet and leave our disgust to one side. That disgust has to be broken down. Now they've been doing that. Because you notice today that homosexuality is far more acceptance in society than it had 20 or 30 years ago. Why is that? It's been a huge campaign by various lobby groups, by the compliant media. Look at how they portray homosexuals, transsexuals, always portrayed in a positive light. Advertisements show happy family scenes with same-sex parents, lesbian couples, soap operas and films where heterosexual marriages are falling apart, while same-sex couples are enjoying happy, stable relationships. And then you get the opposite of that, where you get the local minister, who is a homosexual, living in a stable relationship while the rest of the cast, the heterosexual cast, are of course sleeping around and cheating and committing adultery left, right and centre. Breaking down what the Freudian philosophers see as the rightful disgust of society. So we have these two important influences between Marx and Freud. Marx's views on religion, on God, on activism, how to achieve your goals, those two important influences, Marx and Freud, turning everything in life about sexual gratification. And those are the foundations of this culture of victimhood in which we live. Marxist influence driving people away from the churches, emphasizing individual and group alienation perpetrated upon victims by conservative people seen as the oppressors, like that poor nurse, Amy Gallagher, deconstructing anything that is considered to be institutional, making every part of society a battleground for alleged victims to wage war on their perceived oppressors. Someone tweeted this the other day. I don't know who's, who said it, but I, I picked it up because I thought it was good. For a Marxist revolution to succeed, there needs to be a large proletarian class. 
But what if there aren't enough proletariats to carry out the revolution? Well, then you use identity politics to create new kinds of proletariat. And you expand the proletariat base by expanding the identities from race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, age, body weight, trans, and well beyond. And when that's still not enough, you then open up your national border to import more victims from afar. The making of the proletariat is the making of the Marxist revolution. The turning of people into victims is the intended destination and means to break down civilized society. That battleground includes language. Those who question the victim status of the present influx of economic migrants, illegal immigrants, or who express opinions that housing them in luxury hotels is perhaps a waste of public resources and the destruction of our tourist industry. Those who are worried about the accompanying upsurge in predatory sexual assaults on young people are being silenced by being branded as racists. If you should be so bold as to point out the destructive nature of homosexual relationships, you'll be called homophobic. If you say that children are too young at 11 or 12 to change their gender, take puberty-blocking drugs, then you are transphobic. If you condemn the actions of Pakistani grooming gangs in Rochdale, then you're a racist and an Islamophobic person. And I've just heard this week that if you utter the words cultural Marxism as a description of what's happening in society, guess what? You're an anti-Semite because Marx was a Jew. In the 1980s, I wrote an article for an English Christian magazine. It was an article about the great blessings that accrued to the visible church because of the glorious revolution of 1688, especially the church in Scotland. A few weeks after it was published, I received a letter from a pastor in Wales. I had written an article about the glorious revolution about King William of Orange. And it was called a racist, fascist bigot who was not fit to stand in a pulpit. And I hadn't even mentioned the Battle of the Boyne. Nowhere have those influences been more apparent than in education. Universities have been pushing leftist cultural Marxism for decades. Oh, there, I've done it again. And as fast as universities and colleges churn out teachers, the influences that they have been taught have trickled down through our education system. Our schools, now instead of instilling values of positivity and hard work and aspiration in our children, instead of giving them biblical instruction or teaching them critical theories, and diversity and gender studies. And what are we looking at? We're looking at a whole new generation of new cultural Marxists, all of them activists in training, 
just waiting to be unleashed into the world to continue the Marxist revolution. In a society where victimhood has become a source of kudos and status and prestige and celebrity, even a saleable commodity. Imagine a young man, a millionaire, a man in a greatly privileged position, married to a beautiful woman, with servants and luxury accommodation and security, and no shortage of money, a man whose every whim has been catered for, who, to portray himself and promote himself as a celebrity, who wants to sell TV shows and podcasts and sell his autobiography, actually has to show himself to be a victim, to portray himself and his wife as being discriminated against, to appeal to the zeitgeist, to connect with the prevailing mood of the age so that he can afford, as a victim, to live in a mansion in California keeping up with the jet-set companions that suits his lifestyle. But this fabricated victimhood causes problems. We have a truly modern dilemma, a hierarchy of victimhood, which we call intersectionality. The Encyclopedia Britannica again, According to the thesis of intersectionality, no individual can be adequately identified by membership in a single group. So an African-American person may, for example, also identify as a woman or a lesbian or a feminist or, in the mind of Encyclopedia Britannica, a Christian. Well, what would a lesbian, feminist, Christian be like? I wonder... So the issue becomes how many victimhood boxes can you tick? In the eyes of the cultural Marxist waging war on the patriarchy, a reasonably healthy white male middle-aged Christian can't be a victim, can they? They're more likely to be an oppressor of some sort. But a woman would have victim status because her sex has been oppressed by the patriarchy. I don't have the time in this lesson to talk about the biblical teaching on human relationships between men and women. But trust me, the Christian view on how women should be treated by men is way ahead of anything that the social justice warriors could dream up. A black man considers himself a victim, a black woman even more so. And a black woman who is uh, a lesbian is even more so. It goes on and on and on. The dangers of this rankdom, ranking system for victimhood is precisely defined for us by Rosario Butterfield. She wrote, Intersectionality is an analytical tool introduced in humanities and social science departments in U.S. universities in the 1990s. It creates a grand story out of oppression. It maintains that the world is made up of power struggles. There you are. That's, that's the Marxism. And that white male heterosexual patriarchy must be destroyed in order to liberate those who are being oppressed by it. Thus, any perceived rejection of personal identity based in LGBTQ plus affirmation constitutes harm. There's Freudianism. 
Harm then is both material and psychological, real and perceived. And that struggle, perpetrated in every form of human interaction by the cultural Marxists, using human sexuality and gender as weapons to destroy childhood, to murder babies in the womb, to mutilate the bodies of children far too young to make a decision to drive a car or to drink alcohol. It's used to destroy families in the family unit. It's used to wreck marriages and relationships. It's used to divide society into warring groups defined by their perceived identities. It's used to attack basic Christian morality. That struggle, that struggle that Marx initiated is what is driving the culture today with a ferociousness that defies every attempt by conservative thinkers to stop it. It is being pumped relentlessly into a sleeping comatose population by the media, the movies, the press, the government. Sad to say, even by some sections of the visible church. So, we have learned something of what's happening, why it's happening, what's driving it, what's the thought behind it. Of course, it's devilish, isn't it? What can we do? There's a verse in Psalm 11 that challenges me greatly. In verse 3, the psalmist says, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Don't be thinking that's a cry of despair. We're not bringing our hands in grief, not in the slightest. When we see what's going on in the world and we see the godless agenda behind it, we're not wringing our hands and saying, if the foundations be destroyed, oh, what can we do about it? There's nothing we can do. What can we do? That's not what the psalm is saying. That's a question. It's a question he answers in the psalm. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? There is something we can do. The psalmist in this psalm, you see, has been advised to run away from his enemies. If you look at verse 1, it says, How say ye to my soul, flee? He's been advised to run from the strong, confident warriors who are ready to release mayhem and injury and death upon the land. And there are plenty. But for the psalmist, cowardice is not the answer. We're not to run away. The foundation of society is the word of God. That's because we were created by God to live in accordance with his ways, to glorify God. Our enjoyment is not to come from human sexual gratification. Our enjoyment of life comes from a fellowship and a relationship with our creator. It's the foundation, not just of our own lives, but the foundation of our family lives. It is the manner in which God intended us to live as outlined for us in his law. That's the foundation. And cultural Marxists in us, in our society, in different areas and stratas of society, are working away 
to destroy that foundation. And when that foundation should be destroyed, our ordered society will crumble. We can't run away. We can't allow the foundations to be destroyed. We've got to do something. We're not to bury our heads and pretend there is no satanic agenda. Not to bury our heads and think that everything's going to be fine. What can the righteous do? Psalmist has the answer. Right here in the first verse. In the Lord put I my trust. We don't trust in men. We know that our sovereign God is in total control of this world. Despite the best attempts of these people to destroy everything that is good. God is in command. He is in control of this universe and in the destiny of it. And the psalmist in verse 7 concludes that this almighty God is not just interested in this world. He's interested in me and you personally. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. Do you know I want to give you a word of confidence here this evening. You may be sitting looking at society all around you and you're in despair. Absolute despair. And you see the rise of these worldly and godless philosophies and you see a church that's on its knees and weak and supine and you see homosexuals marching in the streets of Belfast and you see the, 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 the hordes of people coming in from abroad and bringing in their dubious morality with them and you're in despair and you hold your head in your hands and you wonder what's going to become of you. Remember that the Lord loves righteousness. He loves doing what is right and his countenance, his face is turned to you. The Lord is with us. I think we have to recognize the true nature of mankind, though. We're rightly identified in Scripture as sinners. It's true. You want an identity group this evening and you want to belong to, then here's one for you. You're a sinner. Every one of us are sinners. Romans 3 and verse 10, it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. It's a unifying factor. It transcends any man-made division in society. In a sense, saying that we are sinners means that we have to observe two seemingly opposite truths because all of us are the victims of the fall. We are all victims. Paul says in Romans 5 and verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned and we can't do anything about that that is something that happened to us we are the victims of adam's fall from the very moment of our conception that's why we believe that life begins at conception psalm 51 and verse 5 behold i was shaped in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me but although we're all victims, we are all perpetrators. That's why I say these truths seemingly opposite are two sides of the one coin. They are dichotomous. 
We compound the problem. Instead of recognizing our victimhood and, and acknowledging it, we entrench it. And we entrench it by our willing and complicit participation in perpetuating what Adam has done. From birth we sin. We sin because we are conceived as sinners and we keep sinning. The Marxist agenda with its warring factions, each claiming supremacies over the others, is a symptom of our sinfulness and it is at the same time a sin in itself, a breach of the commandment that we should not covet what others have, that we should not commit adultery, that we should not commit murder, that we should honour our parents and take our family responsibilities seriously, that we should not steal. We are simultaneously victims and the cause of our victimhood. And we are guilty before God. And the end of the unrepentant sinner is death. It is eternal condemnation. And the wrath of the creator God, who is perfectly just and holy and righteous, for the wages of sin is death. We trust in the Lord. We recognize the true nature of mankind. And we, thirdly, must be visibly out there in the public square. There must be Christian representation. Have you noticed that all of these cultural Marxist lobby groups and the special interest groups have loud voices? We can't be quiet. We must recognize sin where it exists. We must speak up. We must call it out for what it is. We cannot be silenced by those People who say that we are on the wrong side of history, that we're dinosaurs, that we're flat earthers, that we're Bible bashers. The real issue is, do you want to be on the right side of history or do you want to be on the right side of eternity? And that's going to mean speaking up. And for some of you here tonight, that's actually going to mean speaking up within your own local churches. Within the visible church, where very often these uncomfortable truths are buried for the sake of convenience, or buried for the sake of popularity, or sadly, even buried for the sake of government patronage. The book of Joel tells us where to do that. Joel chapter 2 and verse 1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. We've got a short time to do this. We must speak up, and we must proclaim the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ at every opportunity. The Christian must always be placarding Christ. It's not enough just to stand and condemn what's going on in the world. That's just placarding our own philosophies and theories. We have to placard Christ. The life of Christ and what the Lord Jesus did at the cross is a mirror image of our human condition, an opposite reflection, because where we are sinful, the inheritors of Adam's sin, he is sinless. 
First Peter 2 and 22 tells us that he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. First Peter 3 and 18, For Christ also hath suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And were we the victims of Adam's fall, continue to willfully sin, defiantly perpetrating our own victimhood, our Lord Jesus willingly became a victim for us. And as a sacrificial victim, he took away and destroyed forever what Adam has done for sin at the cross. Isaiah 53 and verse 5. That wonderful verse. But he was wounded for our transgressions. And he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. The creator of this world, the giver of life, became a sacrificial victim at the cross for sinners. We trust in the Lord. We recognize the true nature of mankind. We speak out for Christ in the public square. We preach the gospel unashamedly. And we must practice our Christian worldview. Romans clearly tells us we're not to be conformed to this world. No, we're not. The world is on a downhill slide. We're not to be part of it. We're to be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We resolve to live out the historically moral and conservative lifestyle that the social justice warriors and the cultural Marxists despise and want to destroy. We want to develop good family relationships. We want to build up our families, not break them down. We want to work hard and achieve, not sponge off those who have other, who have more. We want to love our neighbor as ourselves. We want to go to church on the Lord's day to be seen, to be living for God, to be doing what is right and upright and what is acceptable to Him rather than kowtowing to the popular culture. Start off by telling you that this would be called victim wars. In what sense? The victimhood culture with its Marxist strategy of creating conflict and division in every social setting, fueled by leftist ideologies, is a war. Critical theories and intersectionality causing division among people, among societies, among families, 
creating unwanted tensions, a kind of divide and conquer approach, identitarian politics, diversity theories, multiculturalism, woke ideologies, destroying our communities. We're at war. It's a war that we don't want. It's a war not of our own making. It's a war we didn't choose to fight. But we are under attack. The church is under attack. Biblical morality is under attack. We could even say that our nation is under attack. For our laws, our common law, was based on biblical law. And the cultural is coming at us from satanic, non-Christian influences. But we are the soldiers of the cross. We are not passive. Let us learn to do battle for the Lord. Let us say with the psalmist in Psalm 144, Blessed be the Lord my strength, which teacheth my hands to war and my fingers to fight. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.